0: In the late 1980s, Bernard Lietteau was working for Oracle in Paris. He noticed that many of his customers were struggling with getting data out of databases, and he wondered if it could be easier. Understanding all that data required people who could tell a story. It was as if the database fragmented the real world, and then analysts were the people that put Humpty Dumpty back together again to retell the story that created the information. Newcomers had to track down the people who could tell them that story, And all of this took a ton of time and a ton of effort. So it got Bernard to thinking, what if you could enrich data with language that non-technical people could understand? What if you could turn random fragments of data into Lego blocks that people could piece back together again? His imagination catalyzed the genesis of Business Objects, a company that you may have heard of, but perhaps know little about. Business Objects was a pioneer, arguably the category creator in a foundational market, business intelligence. Founded in 1990, Business Objects took four years to become the first European software company to IPO on the Nasdaq. And 17 years later, Business Objects ultimately sold to SAP for nearly seven billion dollars to become one of the largest acquisitions in software at the time. Today, Bernard is managing partner at Balderton Capital, one of the leading early-stage venture capital firms in Europe. He's also a member of the supervisory board of SAP. He has received a number of distinctions, including the Knight of the Legion of Honor in 2007 in France. Bernard is our guest today, and he's going to talk to us about data, past, present, and future.
1: Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Bernard Lioteau, managing partner at Balderton Capital. In this episode, he and Satin discuss the origins of business intelligence, Bernard's experiences as a founder, and creating healthy cultures. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Alation enables people to find, understand, trust, govern, and use data with confidence. More than 25% of all Fortune 100 companies use Alation to support data-driven decision-making. Organizations like Cisco, Pfizer, and US Foods drive data culture and innovation with Alation. Learn more about Alation at A L A T I O N dot com.
0: Bernard, you founded Business Objects. Tell us a little bit about that story. And you know, tell us the founding story, what caused you to do it, how you got your start, and why you did it.
2: It starts in nineteen ninety. That's when we started Business Objects. But prior to that, I was at Oracle. So I started my career at Oracle back in eighty-six when Oracle was a fairly small uh, software company doing about $100 million of revenue. And it started its French operation in Paris. And I joined at that moment. So I spent about, that was my very first job. I joined when I was like 23. And Oracle grew at that time in France from about 10 people, which was the original group, to about 500 people in three years. And it gave me sort of a desire to at some point, you know, start a software company. But I was just, searching for the idea. But what I saw at Oracle was that all these corporations were putting in place databases. And the message at Oracle was that, oh, it's very easy to access data. You just use SQL. And SQL is a super easy language for any business users. But the reality was very, very different. The most important thing was that the database structure were very complicated for people. And so I always thought like this is uh, not an easy thing for people to do. And at the same time, I met a, uh, a developer, an independent developer in Paris who came to Oracle with an idea which and a product, actually a prototype of a product that facilitated the writing of SQL queries. And he said, hey, uh, look at my product. What do you think? Would Oracle be interested in it? The product in itself was interesting, but was very thin and it's a thin layer to just select the table or select the columns. So it was not that interesting, but we, I worked with him for... About six months, and we built basically a much more elaborate product that used the concept of a layer, a semantic layer on top of uh, the database. I met this other gentleman, Denis, who is my co-founder, who is in sales at, uh, at Oracle. And we both decided, okay, we need to get this product, start a company, and we'll see what happens. So we left Oracle. We negotiated a deal with this developer so we could acquire the intellectual property from him. And then we went off and started Business Objects.
0: Before Business Objects came along, working with data required specific programming skills. Bernard broke down how the company created a revolutionary way to consume and model data.
2: The idea was that Business Object was enabling basically business users to access data very easily. And that was something that didn't really exist at the time because also the concept that we had was very new. Uh, this concept of manipulating not just entities in a database, but manipulating, manipulating terms of your business vocabulary, hence the name Business Object. So if you're in sales, your vocabulary are customers, prospects, revenue potential, et cetera, et cetera. If you're in HR, it's basically employees, it's seniority, it's salaries, comp, et cetera. And if you're in finance, it's a whole different kind of vocabulary. So created, we enable people to create these vocabulary in a corporation, enabling people to just assemble queries by just putting these objects next to each other. And so that concept was quite of new. I mean, it was actually completely new because we had invented it out of nothing. And then we did, I remember we did the very, very first sale with a customer in France. And this particular customer had picked Sybase, which was a competitor to Oracle at that time. And uh, the customer said, "Ah, you know, Sybase is better than Oracle. It goes faster. It uses less memory. I want to use its software. And then we Worked with a salesperson at Oracle and said, hey, why don't you try to present our product on top of Oracle? It only works on top of Oracle. And maybe you have a chance to win it. And then we, the customer agreed to let us do that single demo. We did it. The customer said, this is exactly what I want. I want business objects. So whatever database, I don't care, actually. What I want is the end user interface. <laughs> and so that worked. And then we, I mean, Oracle won the deal over Sybase. And then afterwards, obviously, we told that story thousands of times to every single salesperson at Oracle saying, hey, we'll work with you. We won't work with any of your competitors. Get us in.
0: It's a win-win. And that's how we managed to get initial traction. You look back at the story. I mean, so so for you, you created a category, right? I mean, you, you did this in a world where nobody even knew what a semantic layer was. People barely new sequel at the time. I mean, it wasn't a, certainly it wasn't a world dominant skill. And here you are creating this idea of this thing that people needed. And then they, they only realized they needed it because they saw it. Did you think you were creating a category at the time? No,
2: I mean, I think to me, you know, partly maybe because I am, I'm not a coder myself. I'm not, a, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, but I always like the um, concept and I lo- like easy things. I'm always looking for convenience. And I had to deal with SQL because I started as a pre sales so, so I did demos and stuff. And I was trying to convince the customers that, you know, things were easy. But I I recognized they were not that easy. And so to me, it was like I was really searching for a way to make a query much easier. And it's sort of, a, it may be a little accidental, but I, I realized, because having done so many demos and so many little, little pre-sales engagements that, the main thing was really always the struggle was always in understanding the data for an end user. It was not that much the language. The language you can learn, okay, select from, et etc. Where, but it's always like where are where is the data? What does it mean? How, what is join structure? Which join should I use? Which I so it's like I was thinking, is there a way to sort of eliminate all this and and really be in the language of the user? The concept of semantic layer sort of came afterwards i mean it's that you you basically abstract a concept from a couple of feature points that you developed which was hey uh you know this thing called sales so revenue which is the sum of again price times quantity if we could encapsulate that into something and then we realize that we can reuse it the same formula we can reuse it in different places so it's more like can we take little pieces of SQL statements and, and reuse it, combine it on the fly, and that basically we, we sort of named it afterwards. We said, okay, well, this is we, we're going to call these things objects. We're going to give them names, and we're going to put them into a little container that we call a universe, because it's sort of a it's for the universe of that particular kind of users. And then that was it. That's then afterwards say, hey, how do we call that thing? Well, over time we sort of thought about calling it a semantic layer, but there was no idea, no conception of a category at the very beginning. It was just like trying to solve a problem, which I certainly was encountering all the time. And then you, I think you discover, or maybe it's different in other cases, but certainly in our case, we discover how big this issue was as we went along.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I guess it would be 30 years later when I would be pitching Alation and people would ask me, what is it? And I'd say, well, do you, do you know what a semantic layer is in the business object universe? Well, we're trying to make that its own software product. Of course, you did that 30 years earlier, so shame on me.
2: No, but what's interesting is that the concept that we created at the beginning, a lot of people thought it was a bad idea because, uh, you know, most, I mean, all our competitors, are people who are trying to create convenient query builders they were saying, well, business object is bad because with business object, you, have, you first have to create these things, these universes. And so you have to do some work, whereas we can work straight you know, out of the box. Uh, but the straight out of the box meant that you were, you had to deal with a database structure and so on. Whereas we made that abstraction, but there was an upfront work. But uh, at the beginning, it was a fight to convince basically the world that this concept of semantic layer was a good one but that that initial work the, the upfront work of building this universe of objects was game changing in terms of the use the ease of use of the product for the consumers afterwards for the end users
0: yeah and relative to the, what was available at the time probably opened up the addressable market for who could use data significantly so you know tell me about the journey of the company itself you, you know you started in 1990, you finally exited in 2006. Is that right, or 2016? Or sorry, no, 16, uh, 2008. Eight. I'm sorry, 2008. 2008. So uh, that's yeah. a, you know, 28 year journey. I think my math is okay there.
2: No, no, no. Sorry. So let me just just put it back. It's it's like we started. We actually started in 1990, and then we finished in 2008. Yeah.
0: Sorry. Yeah. eighteen year journey. So my math is yeah. not that good. Yeah. Yeah. I should not be running this company. Um, the. <laughs> So what um what what were the stages of the company? I mean, where if you look back on the story, what was the evolution? So you had two guys and the proverbial garage at the very beginning. What were the shift changes?
2: Yeah, yeah. So there were several phases. The first phase were startup phases. So startup phase like two guys in a little business center outside of Paris and it's basically convincing the first customers with this product and really making the product real and also we had to build an R&D team because we just had this freelance developer at the beginning but so we we started you know getting the first customers in France and then we we realized okay we need to develop professionally and uh and this is when we're going to say we we are going to try the venture capital route and i had a, um, some uh, acquaintances that were in venture and some in california some of them being at the origin of Oracle. They were a business angel in Oracle. And I presented, and, and one of them is was Don Lucas. Don Lucas who is. it's funny, just, I was just watching the, the Theranos Netflix the other day, and Don Lucas is, is very much prominent there. But he was one of the first guys with other folks, Arnold Silverman and, and a few others who basically believe in the idea. And so they were business angels. And and so we I managed to get, them to invest a little bit of money, and then we had two venture capitalists in France put some money. But the first round was basically a million dollars, in six months after we started the company. And then with that, we were able to start, and and we had the idea that if we want to succeed, we need to succeed on a global scale. So we started a business in August 1990, and in September 91, we opened our U.S. office and our U.K. office in parallel. So, basically, very, very quickly, we were just barely ten people in france. we had we started our u uh, s operation, and it actually clicked quite well. you know we uh, I hired a few salespeople, relocated myself uh, in the u s and then started the uh, started the u s business. but from the ground up, we didn't hire a big gm of u s operation. We just hired salespeople, pre-sales So we took the best Oracle person in New York, the best Formix person in Chicago, the best Oracle person in Dallas, and the best in San Francisco. And we start like this. Uh, And that worked out quite well. We did 200K the first six months. Then we did 1.8 million, well, 1.5 actually in 91. Then we did 5 million the year after. Then we did 15.
0: At the time of the IPO, things were going incredibly well. They were a stock market darling, projected to grow at over 100%. But as with all great adventures, things would take a turn. Bernard called it a near-death crisis.
2: Basically, 94, 95, beginning of 96, everything is going great. We're doubling every year. We're going from, you know, so 15 to 30 to 60 the profit increases were viewed as a bit of a darling on on the stock market. Or we went public at originally at 125 million dollar valuation. That was our IPO price. And uh, a year and a half later, we were worth a billion. So we we thought we were on top of the world at that time. And then that's when difficulties became to happen. So that's phase three, which is basically the the crisis of business subjects where we we experienced basically a near-death crisis where several things happened at the same time. We felt that the product had to be rebuilt because um, A, uh, the technology was a bit old. Second, we were confronted with a completely different competitor which was S-Base with a product that I'm sure Satin you remember which is OLAP-Base. And it was this concept of online analytical processing which was coming on the market and Everybody wanted that. It was fast. It was multidimensional. And we didn't have that. And we felt like, okay, we need to completely change our product so we can compete. So we wanted to build a new version, which we did. But we had all sorts of issues with it. we, I'm sure we can go into the details. But basically, the product, our new product, everybody wanted it, but it didn't work. It didn't work on the uh, uh, old architecture of Microsoft. And the launch was a complete disaster. In addition, we had a an issue with a contract in Germany that we thought was a good contract, but ended up being a bad contract that we had to back out of our of our accounts. And when you're a public company, this kind of thing is is lethal. So we we had a terrible time with a combination of sales problems, compet- competition, product issues, and basically everything arrived at the same time, and our our stock price was heavily impacted because basically we were missing our results. So instead of growing at 100%, like people were expecting us to, we grew only at 40%. Um, And therefore our stock price, well, our market cap went from a billion to 100 million. So we lost 90% of our value in a period of three or four months. So that was the crisis, really dark moment uh, of the company.
0: What year was that happening?
2: That was in '96. 96. So we're about six years into the company, two years into the public life of the company, and everything is going the wrong way. At the same time, my uh, co-founder Denis decides that he wants to leave the business. He was interested in the first phase of the buildup, the IPO. Which for him, sort of the the story was was less interesting afterwards. But I was really interested in in continuing the story i basically I'm by myself now, and I had to rebuild the company. I was based in Paris. The, the entire management team was based in Paris, and I have to engineer a turnaround. And that's going to be that's going to be from many different angles. I'm going to decide that first of all, we're going to have to rebuild the product, fix it, completely change the product development process. I'm going to change the center of gravity of the company, move from. France to California, to be closer to our core customers, our core partners, but also to the financial community, because we were public on on Wall Street we're not public in France, rebuild the management team because that move and all the troubles basically meant that half of the management team was going to leave and started from there and then and that's that's basically this this new phase of the company from. End of '96 to '99, where it's basically the turnaround, where we're going to again rebuild the, the existing product, build also a new product on the web because it's a very, very beginning of uh, of the internet and, and web-based products, and we're going to come out of this basically brilliantly, fortunately, with uh, with through innovation, like uh, obviously fixing our old product, but also innovating through a brand new internet product. And become again what the company the the customers wanted
0: at the time. By this phase, was the product still the semantic layer with the business modeling? And it, did you? And it sounds like you then added that same OLAP capability, or at least something approximating it underneath the hood. Were those the two basic elements of the product?
2: Yes, I mean I think we we came yeah we came out with a brand new innovation, which was really interesting, which was a uh, the concept of an integrated product that did OLAP and query and reporting in one engine. So basically, the idea is that you query the data always through a semantic layer, but the semantic layer is intelligent enough to decide that they should bring back more data from the database than you actually need. Let's say you want revenue by customer, and you just put that query well, actually, the the query is also going to retrieve the the granular data by year and by product. So if you want to drill into the data a la OLAP, like do multidimensional analysis, so let's drill into revenue, not just by customer, but also by customer by year, or by customer by year, and by product, you can do that without querying back the database. You work now in a little mini-cube. So we create the concept of micro-cube, which was like an OLAP cube, but was downloaded onto your desktop. And so that that combination of query and OLAP and reporting became, so was the product, the Business Object like version 4, which was which had really trouble getting launched because it was complicated and it was buggy and so on, but ended up being an enormous success afterwards on the market. And then on the side, we created this uh, a version of that called web intelligence, which was always based on the same semantic layer, but doing a very thin very easy to use query and analysis product just from a browser and the combination of these two products really enabled us to grow substantially so we went from you know, 16 million to 85 which was a year where people were expecting us to do 120 or something but we went from that 120 to oh, sorry 85 to 120 to 200 something 210 and so we our growth Started to pick up again, and then we became profitable again. So we we didn't lose money through this period. We went from, you know, so seventeen, eighteen percent operating margin down to zero, then down to then back up to fifteen and twenty percent. So finally, I mean, from a from a performance standpoint, it wasn't it wasn't bad. We just went, I mean the the lowest point of growth was forty percent. The lowest point of operating margin was yeah break even. But the market was expecting so much uh, that that it went to 100 million. But from 100 million, we went back up to, I think, about three or four billion in a period of a few years, and we became for two years in a row the one of the top ten tech stocks on Wall Street. So that, that the turnaround was superb and really enabled us to be back again the number one business intelligence product on the market. So that's that's basically um, yeah a, a really important phase of the of the company.
0: It's funny because I hear your story and there's so and I don't know if it's just because all startups are all, all startups are similar, but there's so many different parallels. We both started as product marketing managers at Oracle. The revenue trajectory is actually quite similar in, in many ways, and so it's just a, just an interesting thing to watch this and then you know even some of the rearchitecture. So. I guess, were you maybe from a product perspective, I mean, you guys had the semantic layer, you had the visualization layer, you had the OLAP processing layer, all of which now are like, I mean, there's probably 20 companies doing each of those things on some level at this at this moment. And, uh, you know, did you foresee this next generation? I mean, as you left, did you sort of think, oh, there's going to be this, this flourishing number of companies in the space? Or how did you think about the world evolving?
2: To me because uh we're, we're now a generation three or four of uh of bi products you know we, it was first generation was business objects and cognos and and espace and microstrategy and then generation was click and tableau and then now it's looker and and a, and a few others ThoughtSpot and, and a bunch of other uh, other companies but each generation replaced the prior one with the exact same message it's basically oh the other product before there. For the IT, they're complicated, you, nobody can use them, and what you want is to really liberate the users so that they can have access to information at their fingertips uh, when they want, blah, 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 it's very easy. That was exactly the message that we started with. So it, it, it's funny how it reinvents itself from a product and architecture standpoint, but we try, we're still, each generation is still trying to solve the same issue, which is how can you let business people have access to information in real time to make decision-based on data
0: and not on gut feel. It's funny because as I, you know, as I see it, there's, we're solving some incredible problems on the compute and processing layer, right? The speed and the volume and the interactivity, those problems seem like they're, you know, really orders of magnitude better, we're better off now than we, of course, we were before. And then on the flip side, a lot of the human cognition issues, I mean, you know, we see, I've seen at least five or seven companies who talk about building a metrics layer, right? Which, you know, sounds awful lot like the semantic layer that you were referring to. And, you know, it's funny, I read this one blog and and somebody came out and said, you know, well, at Airbnb, we had a single place where we defined all the dimensions and all the metrics. And that was a huge innovation for us. And I thought to myself, wow, that, that the fact that that's, you know, in 2022 being pitched as, the most innovative idea is pretty, pretty interesting. How do we solve that problem? Because that's, that's certainly the problem that I feel like I'm working on. And it's this, how do I teach people to talk to databases? Now, in your lens as a venture capitalist, how do you, how do you see innovation occurring in, in that domain?
2: I think uh, as, we, as this industry develops, you realize that it segments itself. You, you, it's very hard to have one solution for everybody. Because you have, um, you know, you, you have this concept of also data scientists, you have also business analysts, which didn't really exist that much at the time. So because of the culture of data developing in companies, there are a lot more people who are more at ease with, de- with using data. So in the 90s, people working in businesses were data ignorant, meaning they had no concept of how to deal with data. They didn't know database, they didn't know SQL. And I certainly didn't know coding. You have to work with data now if you want to be good at your job. So, But some people will work with data in a very structured way, and they will just want to have access to data and, and lots of dynamic capabilities into the data. Some will want to do exploration. So you have products that are specialized at how do you explore data, meaning you have no idea what the end goal is. So that's a completely different kind of product, right? And then... You have products that are specialized in massive distribution of information. And you have data, again, that are more like for data scientists. 20 years ago, that didn't exist at all because the culture of data wasn't quite there. So I think we, as we grow, the business grows, but it also segments more and more. And I think it's going to continue to be this way for a while.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, it's funny because I think a lot of people there's this new movement around, for example, a modern data stack and some really incredible tools that are coming out. But, you know, you can also see in five years, there's going to be the more modern, more modern data stack. Because on some level, you know, analytics is really the exercise of accelerating human cognition and, you know, sort of abetting human cognition. And I just think that the, you know, the the, the fundamentally cool thing about human beings, especially educated ones, is that they just have... This ability to think about problems in such different, totally orthogonal ways, and to the extent software can help people do that differently, better against different problems and different types of data, I, you know, the returns to that are always going to be extraordinary.
2: Yeah, but I, I think we've seen the, the fact that you know people are better educated around the data. The data is is available in many more ways because the capacity of the data bases to crunch enormous amount of data at fast time and in, in, in speedy time is, is, you know, 100x, 1,000x more than what it was at the time. You can also mix and match data, inside data and outside data, which was sort of uh, unthinkable in the 90s. So you could only access the data that was there in your corporate servers. Now you can mix and match data and then you can use more unstructured information as well. So I, I think, it's, it's become a lot more sophisticated. I think the industry is, still has, in my view, still solid 25 years of great growth and new innovations to get to the holy grail of, of, uh, people being able to, yeah, use information very easily and, and take all advantage of it with a mix of AI and, you know, and, and exploration and dynamic information. There's, there's a ton of things that still need to be done.
0: So maybe switching gears, this is a podcast about data culture, and a lot of the people who are listening are listening both to understand the dynamics of the software space because they're consuming a ton of it, and it affects how they think and act organizationally. But you obviously have this unique vantage point because you've seen companies sort of get transformed by data, and then you yourself built a company that was a data company, but also that had its own culture. Tell us about the culture of business objects. What was that culture? How did it differ from other software companies at the time? Did you even think about culture? Because everybody talks; it seems like they're talking about culture now. But is that something that you considered at the time?
2: I think we had a good balance between sales and marketing and, and product. Uh, sales and marketing was a very, very important function at, at business objects. A little bit like Oracle, you know. It's, um, meaning that uh, there was a lot of the company. Dynamics that was around a culture of uh, of great salespeople, high performance in in sales and, and marketing, great branding, and, and at the same time, I think I think we had a, I mean the the company has been built on a series of innovation, the semantic layer, the great user interface, the, the beginning of that category. So these these technology were really really important, and a lot of us came from Oracle. I came from Oracle. My my co-founder came from Oracle. So we, we had a bit of an Oracle culture to begin with. But I think we I think we gave it more of a human side. And one thing that really made us different, in my opinion, was the international nature of business objects. And we were a French company, but we recognized very early on that France is not necessarily the I mean certainly at that time was not the heart of the software industry, right? There were very, very few software companies coming from France, so we we felt like in order to be a global champion, we had to bring in uh, components from many different places, so there was never a dominant geog- geographical culture within business objects, so there were great ideas coming from France, great ideas coming from the u s but also anybody like uh, there were some elements of innovation that came from Italy that we replicated, some from the Netherlands, some from. Germany, or Japan, or anywhere. And we were we had businesses in many, many countries. Our, distrib- our revenue was distributed across many different places. We had, very early on, we had a, a great development center in India, but we, through Crystal, we have like uh, 1,200 people in Vancouver. We had people in San Jose, a lot of people in Paris. Our Italian office, our Germany office, Or I mean, they, they were a vibrant, vibrant cultures. And everybody was bringing their own local culture into the fabric of the company. That, to me, was something that I'm still very proud of. A lot of people still today believe that the best moment of their career was at Business Subjects. We had a culture that I think a lot of people recognize themselves in, um, which is a, a mix of high performance, uh, great innovation, international culture, and a lot of passionate people.
0: You obviously counsel a ton of entrepreneurs, and what do you tell them about building culture?
2: I think uh, I, w- I would say the first of all, they need to think about it a lot. They need to decide what are the what are the important elements they want as part of the of, of the company culture. Um, and they need to practice it um, and practice them all the time and communicate heavily about it. But probably the most important thing is the founder, CEO, leader of the company needs to exemplify these values in this culture. I personally believe that companies' companies' cultures are modeled after the behavior of the CEO. The CEO, and, and therefore the executive team, behaves a particular way. That basically creates the environments, or the, the type of behavior that everybody feels that they are They should sort of mimic or or adopt. So if you can't say as a CEO, you can't say, "Well, I'm doing this because I'm the CEO." But you cannot do it because you're not the CEO. No, like people. If you start being, if if you if the CEO is sort of uh, really rough with with his executive team, then the executive will be rough with the level underneath, and the roughness will will be part of the culture. If the CEO is very human. Uh, and, uh, and is a listener and, and, and takes input from many different people, that will be part of the culture. So the, to me, the number one element of how uh, you create culture is by, uh, by setting the example. You have to set the example. You're, uh, you're going to be modeled after in-
0: unconsciously or consciously. Um, so, is that true at any level of scale? Is there a level of scale where that becomes not true? When I think about
2: the cultures of the various companies I've encountered across the many years, the past thirty years, I find the the Oracle culture is quite modeled after Larry. I find the um the people soft culture was was very much modeled after its founder. And it they they're very they're each very different. But I, I think at the end I think it stays it stays there based on what the uh, what the founder-CEO models.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, which, you know, if you're trying to change culture within an organization, it's a bottoms-up effort, but it's also, then the, there's also a top-down effort to all of that. So I guess maybe as we end the conversation, there are two things that I'd ask for you. I think the first would be, you know, we're at that phase, I think, where we're sort of now growing from Seven 800 employees to the next level. Would love to get your advice to me personally on, you know, how we do that. And I guess maybe secondarily, would also just love to get your advice to listeners who are trying to do this work. These people who are data professionals, what would you tell them about, about how to broaden the use of data within their organizations, what to focus on, what to think about, how to build these cultures that they're trying to proselytize, evangelize, change?
2: It's a big question.
0: Well, start with the users because they're the ones that are actually, start with the users because they're the ones who are listening in a matter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think in the end, you people do things when it brings them benefit. And therefore, you don't want to do things just because um, there's like a higher purpose. You do things because it facilitates your, your job. I think it's, it's all about getting quick wins. And um, it's not a, about necessarily... Uh, Implementing a grand vision over time, it's its about the day-to-day benefits. You know, I, I need something and I can get that and it's easy and it's right there when I need it. The worst is like, oh, I need to learn this thing and it's complicated and I still have no benefit from it. You know, I'm, I'm going to need to go through training and this and that and lots of uh, authorization and IT blah, 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 in order to get access to my first piece of relevant insight. So everybody wants data, but at the end, it, it sticks if you can apply it to a business situation.
0: And I guess I'll just selfishly ask for the advice from me, not that our listeners will, well, they might be curious as flies on the wall, but what, what would you recommend You know, now, I guess, 10 years in on the journey? To
2: you specifically.
0: To me specifically, yeah, absolutely. It can
2: all <laughs> well, be for the users um,
0: <laughs> and for the listeners.
2: <laughs> to me, great software companies manage to create alignment. And that alignment is basically communicated by you. And I see if you're able to say, okay, this is what we're doing. Uh, this is sort of the, so you, you're creating that magnetic north. You know, everybody knows where the company is going you yourself, you set the culture, so you lead by example, and you create an environment that enables people to achieve extraordinary things, then your job becomes a lot easier because you don't have to tell people what they need to do. You just need to, you just tell them, just look up. And you, when you look up, you you look at the magnetic north and then you know where you're going. You don't need, I mean, all your, reality is most people are going to make decisions without your input. But they just need to know where the company is going. And if they know what their job is, where the company is going, they will make the right decision. With everybody pushing in one direction, company is doing amazing things. Most of the companies that that struggle is because people are, it's not people are bad, it's just that they are going in the wrong or diverse directions, right? So if you have created that clarity, you make people autonomous enough under that clarity of vision and you provide the the example, I think you'll continue to achieve extraordinary
0: ambitions. Well, I clearly have my homework cut out for me. So <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> Easier well, said than done.
2: <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> but you're you're the one who has That's to do right.
0: it. I'm done. That's right. Well thank you for the assignment. <laughs> Bernard, well yeah, you know, thank you obviously for your time today. Uh but, you know, more more critically, thank you for the contributions to the space. I think we all, certainly I, I, you know, we all sit on the shoulders of, or stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. And that is certainly you. So deep appreciation for everything you've done to make our journeys possible.
2: Well, thank you so much for your kind words, Satya. It's It's been a pleasure.
0: Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. In 2012, 22 years after Bernard left Oracle to found Business Objects, I left Oracle to found Alation. My observation at the time was that people really couldn't find, understand, or use all of the different data that was available to them. At the time, it felt like I was doing something unprecedented. Yet over the last 10 years, as I traveled through the path of building a company, I often met people who started their careers at Business Objects, people who today are executives at today's most well-known data companies. We talk about how Alation creates a map for disparate data systems in the same way that business objects created a semantic layer for databases. Business objects call that semantic layer the universe. Of course, today, that universe of data has expanded massively. And the result was that we needed to create a new category of software called data cataloging, which now is one of the pillars of a broader category called data intelligence. So if history does indeed rhyme, it's only because we're able to learn from the patterns of the past. And as much as Silicon Valley and the broader world of technology are all about the new, new thing, we can learn a ton by looking back. This is Satyan Sangani, CEO and co-founder of Alation. Thank you for listening.
1: Alation gives enterprises the tools to make data-driven decisions and grow a data culture. Our data catalog can minimize the time workers spend searching for and worrying about the data they need to do their jobs, turning months of frustration into minutes of action. Visit Alation, that's A-l-a-t-i-o-n with an A, dot com today.